But that was when I was the most disillusioned with DAOs and DeFi and the whole crypto space in general. I just thought, looks to me like it's all uh, like a Fugazi. And when I looked at Maker, I didn't even see how Maker was going to survive. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Unchained, your no-hype resource for all things crypto. I'm your host, Laura Shin, author of The Cryptopians. I started covering crypto eight years ago, and as a senior editor at Forbes, was the first mainstream media reporter to cover cryptocurrency full-time. This is the August 22nd, 2023 episode of Unchained. At Token 2049 Singapore on September 13th to 14th, Balaji Srinivasan, Tyler and Cameron Winklevoss, Arthur Hayes, and 200 others will hit the stage, joining over 10,000 attendees. Visit token2049.com for 65% off regular ticket prices with the code UNCHAINED. Link in the description. Arbitrum's leading Layer 2 scaling solutions can provide you with lightning-fast transactions at a fraction of the cost, all while ensuring security rooted on Ethereum. Arbitrum's newest addition, Orbit, enables you to build your own tailor-made Layer 3. Visit Arbitrum.io today. Buy, trade, and spend crypto on the Crypto.com app. New users can enjoy zero credit card fees on crypto purchases in the first seven days. Download the Crypto.com app and get $25 with the code LAURA. Link in the description. Hey, Unchained listeners. As you know, it's hard keeping up with the fast-paced world of crypto, so we've got just the thing for you. Subscribe to our free Unchained Daily Newsletter at unchainedcrypto.substack.com. You'll get the latest crypto news and original articles from our reporters, as well as summaries of other happenings and bullet points, plus our meme of the day, all curated and written by our amazing team. It's still your no-hype resource for all things crypto, just in newsletter form. Sign up at unchainedcrypto.substack.com. Again, the URL is unchainedcrypto.substack.com. Today's guest is Rune Christensen, co-founder of MakerDAO. Welcome, Rune. Happy to be here. You proposed a change to MakerDAO that is now going to be adopted. And MakerDAO has been around for quite a while. It's very well established. So why is it that you wanted to implement this big change? Yeah, Maker has, at this point, I think, existed more than eight years. And, I mean, it's really a project that's like a product of the early ideological kind of, you know, very early days, right? Sort of coming out of the the kind of the ethos and the community of originally Bitcoin um, and then into, you know, the very early uh, Ethereum community. And I mean, from the very beginning, we've been driven by this, you know, passion and vision of decentralized finance and having it actually do something real for the world, right? Actually impact users for real. Um, and I mean, I think... Obviously, that's why many people are in this space. Uh, but also, at the same time, I think you see today that there's a lot. Of, I mean, there's a lot of stagnation to some extent, right? There's this, especially you had we had DeFi summer, we had the bull run, yet we didn't actually end up seeing too much sort of real new innovation coming out of that. And I actually think that a major reason for that is because of DAOs and the challenges and the problems of DAOs but also the massive opportunity of DAOs, right? Because basically what DAOs are is like, they are supposed to be this like governance layer that makes it possible to decentralize, not just, uh, you know, kind of the infrastructure of finance, but the actual, the decision-making, right? The, the kind of the, 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 the you know, the, ha- the halls of power, the balance of power, the, the kind of what's going on behind the scenes, which is what really matters actually, right? Which is where the real problems occur as well in finance. Um, so DAOs are sort of 
meant to be the solution to that, right? That actually can give us this like utopian future of properly decentralized finance, financial inclusion, banking the unbanked, right? Like more transparency, more efficiency, all this good stuff. What ended up happening is, I mean, I think DAOs and also just like crypto tokens in general just ended up not really working out so well in most cases, right? And I think in Maker, it's, I mean, Maker is not nearly as bad as, as what happened in so many other cases, right? Uh, but what we still ran into in Maker was just that, I guess the naive, the naive ideal of a DAO doesn't work in the sense that the idea is you have this token, you distribute it to a bunch of people, and then they sort of harmoniously, uh, you know, happily get together and make clever decisions for mutual benefit, right? Uh, well, rather, I mean, that actually sort of works when you're small. So you have, everybody knows each other, everybody trusts each other, right? Uh, like a tight-knit community. So everyone know, you know, knows that everyone else is moving in the same direction. But then once you grow past a certain size, then that kind of breaks down because you don't know, you no longer know if everyone else is moving in the same direction. And then what happens is you run into, I mean, what we, I guess you, we call coordination problems, right? or kind of like, you know, strategy of the commons, or like the prisoner's dilemma, where how that really manifested itself in Maker was this, uh, like sort of this very uh, difficult uh, um, time we had sort of managing our expenses and whether anything was actually happening um, through all the expenses that the, the DAO was generating, right? So like, I mean, Maker is like the, it's the oldest DAO in the world, it controls the biggest decentralized stablecoin in the world. Uh, it has like, I mean, more than a hundred million, uh, like $130 million in income per year. Currently it has something like a bit more than $40 million per year in expenses. And at its peak, it was even more. Like for a long time, we actually didn't even like, actually our, our income wasn't even that high, but our expenses was even higher. And, and like the biggest problem was it was sort of out of control. Like nobody really knew what are we actually paying for? How are we paying for it? Uh, the system was sort of just like chugging along with, uh, with this basic, the basic process being that people make proposals to the DAO uh, no longer as it was originally for the sake of the whole DAO, but primarily for their own sake, right? Because what they saw was everyone else is doing the same thing and you get this kind of coordination problem. So at the time, actually, when, I mean, basically, and this was actually at the height of the bull run, uh, that was when I was the most disillusioned with DAOs and DeFi and the whole crypto space in general. I just thought, looks to me like it's all uh, like a Fugazi. And when I looked at Maker, I didn't even see how Maker was going to survive. It looked like Maker was completely, there was not really a way for it to, to sustain itself because it just looked like people weren't collaborating. There was no incentive for them to collaborate. Right? The only incentive was uh, focus on yourself, right? Yeah, I honestly feel like that disillusionment comes for all people who've been building in crypto for a long time during the, the height of the bull runs. Yeah. I mean, absolutely. And of course, and the thing is, I mean, now it's obviously just uh, what it really was. It's like a growing pain thing. Right. And I ended up kind of, uh, I mean, basically determining not to give up on the project and then just being like, okay, well, I guess we need to go back to basics and sort of uh, rethink how can you make, how can you design a DAO to go beyond this naive idea that you just give people a token and then they're going to work it out. Basically, what I, what, I, what I looked at, one of the main things I looked at is like all the things that worked really well with DeFi Summer and then like sort of how these failure modes 
happen in practice as you scale up and as you sort of lose. It's kind of like, I mean, I think maybe the main, one of the really main factors in this is this kind of disconnect with what impact you're having in the DAO. So like any particular individual may be doing a whole bunch of stuff, but there's no like feedback. Like maybe they're doing great, but they don't really get a reward necessarily beyond what they would have done if they had done, they hadn't done very well. And and that lack of a feedback just like really, you know, it's it's discouraging, but it also, I mean, it's also the other way around that if people are doing bad things, then nothing happens. And then they get really encouraged to just be like, okay, well then I should just focus on getting more money out of it. Right. So what I came up with after looking, kind of trying to, to um, deconstruct all of this, essentially, right, and, and try to think about it again from first principles, was, I mean, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a method, I call it alignment engineering, um, but it's sort of like, it's, I mean, it's basically, it's based on, on this concept of like organizational alignment uh, and organizational design, but applied to a DAO where it needs to be decentralized rather than uh, sort of emanating from a from a leadership team, right? So it's like methods that you use in traditional organizations to get people to be on the same page to work together. Um, you can apply similar ideas to a DAO through this uh, approach that, in in our case, we call alignment engineering. I mean, the kind of the tagline of it is that we want to scale constructive participation, right? So we want to, as we scale, we want to just keep getting more people involved, and as people participate, it should always be constructive, right? So they just keep they just naturally collaborate. And if you have more people, they just generate even more value, right? And they're always kind of, you know, on the same page, moving in the same direction, right? And you do this through well-designed tools that make this easy for them, right? Uh, and makes it sort of natural for them to, to work together in the way that actually um, is constructive. And then uh, gamification. So you kind of make it as an experience to participate, right? Like a, a contributor to a DAO is also a form of user. So you need to like gamify uh, kind of, you know, you need to think about the experience they have participating. And then you also incentivize finally, right? So you, you design very advanced incentives rather than just this sort of very simple original uh, idea of a DAO of like everyone gets a token and then bam, they're all on the same page and, and they're, it's just going to work, right? But if you put these three elements in place, right, tools, gamification, and incentives, then you can actually give people a lot of autonomy uh, and a lot of freedom to sort of operate and do what they think is best within the DAO, as long as you add the sort of the final layer, uh, which is governance boundaries. So you need to have a mechanism to sort of set some kind of boundaries where you have it, you get autonomy, you get to, um, you know, make your own decisions and not have to deal with kind of the crushing bureaucracy of a DAO, which is another frustration of DAOs, right? Um, but there's, of course, going to be, like, there's going to be certain rules where basically if you step outside the rules, then we know you're being misaligned. And it's sort of not, I mean, it's basically, uh, it's a little bit like a legal system, actually, in a sense, right? That you have a kind of a, as long as you follow the rules, then all the factors combined mean that we can expect that you're, your input to the DAO is constructive and is generating value. Yeah, to me, it sounds like what you're trying to create is something like the original, or, I mean, like Bitcoin, where um, you have this coin and incentivizes mining, which is needed for the network to have security. But you want to do it for kind of like other things in MakerDAO. So describe kind of the whole end game plan. And I know there's like four phases 
a rebrand, subdow farming, voter rewards, governance, AI tools. So why don't you just walk us through each of these phases? Well, and first of all, I mean, I, it's exactly the Bitcoin thing. That's exactly what we would like to go for in the sense that that's what we, we can't be exactly like Bitcoin, but we often call it like a Bitcoin, like Endgame. The name Endgame is chosen because we want to reach this like Bitcoin-like state of a high level of ossification and certainty and reliability of like the future state of the system, right? And yeah, so, so the way we implement all this, I mean, all this stuff I was talking about is basically through these like four major different aspects of the alignment engineering. So the first one is just like the, the branding and the design of the system. And this, I guess, is maybe like, I mean, on one hand, this is going to matter a lot for growth. And of course, growth is like a really, I mean, it's essential. I mean, the whole point of this is we want to make the system super robust so that we can grow it really large and it will not fall apart. So, I mean, it would be pointless to do it all without also making sure we focus on growth. And um, the reason why we believe there's a big opportunity for a new brand is because basically the original brands were just, they were kind of made up without too much thought being put into it, right? And the big problem is there's two of them. There's like two separate brands. Um, And they're actually great for like, I mean, they're great for like sort of classic crypto and also very important to know that they will, they will stick around, right? So nothing will actually happen to MKR or die. Uh, but there will be like this new sort of third umbrella brand that will include a new stablecoin and a new governance token. Um, and they will then have kind of the same brand, you know, so it's not uh, two completely separate sort of uh, things that, that you don't naturally associate with each other. But rather it's like, it's like the brand and then like the DAO for the brand, basically. I mean, one of the reasons, what, one of the things we noticed was that we would go to events and people would be like, yeah, I use DAI. I love DAI. Oh, it's great. And then they'd be like, what the hell is Maker? I have no idea. I've never heard of it. I have no idea what that is. Right? Like, there's so many people like that. And actually also, to like I said, the other way around, because MKR holders are like, I mean, MKR right now is like a very unique token in, in crypto in that we have this like super low supply uh, and just like a kind of a very... Uh, sort of a culture that has always been very focused on like rash, like being very rational and sort of this like risk management focus. And that's just also resulted in that, that a lot of the holders of MCAT token aren't necessarily DAI users or even like that much of like regular crypto users. Um, but there's like this very sort of unique and specific type of, of uh, MKR um, ecosystem participant. And we really hope to change that because that is also, I mean, getting more overlap between the users and those who govern the system. That is by itself also, I mean, a key step of alignment engineering, right? Because now you naturally get an alignment where, I mean, the people who could run the system, they're much more likely to use it. So they're much more likely to like, think about what do the users want and how do we keep them safe? Uh, and that's going to inform their decisions. So basically what you mean is like comp, compound, Uniswap, Uni, is that what you're getting at that like literally just the names need to be more similar yeah but i mean you could think of i mean but it could be something right i mean there's like there's like compound and comp and then there'd also need to be something like comp usd right that's sort of the in our case we we have both a stable coin and a, a governance token that have to be very similar and i mean but and the big challenge right now is like if you're trying to describe the whole ecosystem there's actually not really a word for that, right? Like, I mean, the closest would be MakerDAO, but the most important part of the ecosystem is DAI, and that's not even contained in the name MakerDAO, right? 
And then not to me, I mean, I could go on about, I've got all these like sort of, I mean, all the kind of obvious issues that came up many years later when I really realized this name is actually really sticky and, and uh, you know, it pops up everywhere and it's used a lot in different contexts. And ultimately it was not designed with that much foresight. So I, I want to, I mean, I basically think that MKR and DAI are great brands for like sort of crypto insiders because they have this history and they're sort of classic brands, right? So they're very valuable and need to be, you know, maintained and nurtured and, and serve their niche basically. But for this major push towards growth, towards actually spread, I mean, breaking the stagnation of DeFi and crypto that we're in now, getting new users involved, I mean, get people to stop losing hope in crypto and stop seeing it as just a giant scam, but instead see some kind of opportunity, something exciting to get into. Uh, that's basically, it's, it's the right moment to then come out with like a much more well thought through brain that can serve this role of like being the vehicle for all these new features. Uh, I mean, all the later stages of Endgame basically. And then also just be like simpler. I mean, and this is kind of simplicity. It's sort of, a, it can be hard to see how that's even possible, right? Because I mean, Maker is famously complex right but what our i mean our approach is we want to be friendly but complex i guess you can say right so and i always keep comparing it to like gamification like a video game right if you start playing a new video game uh it could be massively complex there could be so many things but when you're playing it it's fun and you're not overwhelmed because it keeps you on like the right you know keeps you on the right track right it slowly lets you delve deeper into the world if you want that or just you can just stay in the very beginning and just never get into any of the complex stuff and not feel like you're doing something wrong, which I think is kind of the problem with Maker often today is that it's like either you just die and you don't even know what Maker is or like you try to understand what Maker is and you feel like you're, like you feel like you're not even welcome. But one thing is like you're calling it a rebrand, but you're keeping the original brands and then just launching two new tokens, right? Which is a different sort of thing. Like, why, why not just rename MKR and, and die? Well, I mean, so I would say it's a rebrand in the sense that the website will change, for instance, right? So all it'll, it's more like, so the, so the overarching brand of what it is will change. I mean, you actually cannot really, you can't really uh, rename tokens. Uh, I mean, it's, at least it's very difficult to try to do so uh, because they have a, you know, they've got like this sort of identifier on chain that, determ that determines the name. That's one thing. The other thing is, I mean, there's going to be a lot of people who will just like freak out, who, you know, who will generally uh, get a heart attack, right? Thinking that their money is lost or something. So you'd never, I mean, we actually, I, I mean, we consider that, but in practice, it's just the risks, the unknowns of trying to do that are, are, are very severe, uh, I think. And then finally, on top of that, I mean, there's a lot of, I mean, there's 5 billion die in circulation, right? There's a lot of users that, that like that. And they, that's what they're familiar with. That's what they like to use. Um, there's no reason why they should be disturbed, right? Uh, and for MKR, I think, I mean, some people, they think it's super cool that it's this like super low supply token. Um, and, and it's just like, it's sort of an OG token, right? And similarly, I don't think that, that there's any reason to kind of mess with that. What we can do is because we're offering so many new features and all of these new features are growth focused, in particular, the uh, the subdial farming, which we'll talk about in just a second, right? We, but basically, we can we can be like, look, you can stay with the old system, and not no one's going to mess with you, and everything will be safe, and nothing's going to happen to your money. And if you want to try to upgrade 
to basically what is just a new brand, uh, same security, you know, same governance, same guarantees as the system has always offered you. Then there's all these new features that you can access, but it's entirely optional, and you can go you can go back again, right? So you can switch from Dai to this uh, new stablecoin, and if you don't like it, you can just switch right back, and it's so it's completely risk free, right? So this. I think is actually is crucial in, in in making sure that there's nobody who get conf- you know who gets more confused or you know like uh, overwhelmed by it. It's gotta be it's gotta be fun, right? It's gotta feel simple, and it should never feel like you're getting stressed out and and you rather just do something else than this overwhelming complicated crypto stuff, right? All right, so now yeah. let's talk about subdow farming. As a segue to that, one last thing to mention about this uh, rebrand of the tokens and these new tokens, right? Is that as a part of the rebrand. And so this is, by the way, this is the thing that's called phase one. So this is the first change that will come, will launch likely end of uh, next year. And so as a part of that, there, there's the new stable, which will get some, you know, get this new name, new brand, and then the new, uh, the new Gov token, we call it as a code name. Uh, and the new Gov token will be re-denominated. So that's the thing about the low, low supply thing I'm talking about. So there'll be a lot of these new tokens. They'll be like, uh, they'll re-denominate one to 12,000. So it's kind of like a wrapper, like wrapping your, your ETH into wrapped ETH. But you get for one ETH, you know, for one MKR, you get 12,000 new Gov tokens out. And then you can also go the other way. So there's no risk to doing it. But the other uh, new feature that comes immediately in phase one, in addition to this redenomination, is that you will immediately, from the moment phase one begins, you will be able to farm new Gov token with new stablecoin. So Immediately, in addition to having these aligned brands, if you hold a stablecoin, you can get the governance token for free. Um, so this is a way to really try to get those user bases to overlap. Um, and then from there, we go into phase two, which is kind of like the big launch. The, the, the phase one, we call it the beta launch, because that's just like getting the conditions in place for kind of like, you know, getting the rebrand in place, getting the, the, a lot of the basic infrastructure and getting these new tokens in place. And then when we get to phase two, that's the really, I mean, that's kind of, that's the big, the big launch that I think if we execute correctly, it's going to change the industry. Like it's really going to, it's going to, it's going to be a before or after uh, with, with these sub because nothing like this, like nobody has ever done this. Not even like small experimental projects has done anything as ambitious as what we're trying to do. And we are like basically the largest DeFi project and we are, you know, really uh, playing with, like, with, I mean, the most powerful uh, sort of potential and possibilities of what you can do with, with DeFi and blockchain um, that's been discovered so far, right? And basically what we're doing is we are launching six new DAOs and six new governance tokens at once. And this is, I mean, a really key reason why we're doing this is because of this concept in alignment engineering that we want to, I mean, we want to gamify and we want to incentivize. And so the key is that we want to kind of take all the complexity, all the features of Maker and kind of split them off from the core. So the core is really, really simple. Uh, and it just focuses on sort of some very basic functions like keeping the, the stable coin uh, stable and safe. And then all these like uh, advanced features and initiatives and things like marketing and, growth uh, and innovation, all this stuff, that gets basically split out into these sub-DAOs. And then as a user, 
you can farm any of these subdaps if you hold the stablecoin. So now as a as a stablecoin user, as a as a I mean basically as a customer of the system, right, as an end user, you get this like full uh, access to like what part of the system do you think is interesting? Do you want to participate in? I mean, one thing is that the subdaws, what they focus on is like different, um, you know, different parts of the business, right? So some of them, I mean, a, a big split in particular initially will be some of them focus on like deep crypto. So there's like Spark Protocol, for instance, that's an already like, I mean, early stages of fleshed out subdaw that focuses on innovating on the, the you know, the classic uh, DeFi borrowing uh, functionality um, and sort of is, is, so that's sort of going in the direction of this like deep DeFi, deep tech, deep crypto. Uh, then we also got the real world assets, which is the kind of the big, I mean, the, the other big thing that Maker is really, uh, you know, famous for and has a lot of momentum in right now is that we have very, very advanced and, and large scale deployment of real world assets, which is doing really well because rates are super high right now in Tradfire. Um, and so this is also getting split up into other subdaws. Um, and, and basically the idea is that, I mean, you know, back to this earlier thing I was talking about, right? That there's so much, like we used to have so much expenses, so much stuff happening. It's totally overwhelming. Like, it's like, if you do one thing somewhere, you'd have no idea if you actually like, if you're doing the right, if you're doing it right or not. Uh, and as a token holder, you just have no, it's impossible to like, you can't both be an expert, you know, like cutting edge blockchain innovation and complicated questions of legal structure in 30 different jurisdictions around the world. Like, especially not if you're supposed to be like kind of a casual DAO participant, right? You're not even getting paid, right? You just have a token. Uh, and it's definitely not like fun. And, and it's like kind of like a full-time job. And yeah, very few people did that and, and could really do that. So um, with the subdows, I mean, we basically try to make it, we split it up into these more like focused bite-sized chunks kind of, right? Like projects. And then um, they, will, they all have their own community. They all have their own culture, their own design, their own language, their own, you know, like the, the idea is also to tap into actually to, to a, this other thing that we discovered in um, DeFi Summer, which is like, I mean, we actually call it very simplistic, like the NFT uh, sort of dimension, right? Like that there's something beyond just cold, hard cash. There is a sense of community, like a sense of, of shared values, right? That, that draws people into what's possible with blockchain and, and immutable infrastructure, right? So that's also something we can harness in subdowns to ultimately get something like, for instance, a community that is like, look, we are all in it together to, uh, you know, make really uh, push to the limits what's possible with real assets and, uh, do things like uh, trade finance or, or, or funding small businesses and actually act as like the, the, the connection between the kind of the bulky economic might of, of maker itself and then small businesses in emerging markets that could really benefit from having direct access to this. The thing is maker itself will never be able to do this. It's way too complicated, right? Impossible to scale. But with a subdial, you can have the subdial in between sort of essentially like take the risk of this interaction kind of um, by putting up their own capital and make their own decisions with their tokens, right? So they can vote with their own governance tokens that they farmed and they sort of, you know, they self-organized by farming the same token. Now they're voting with this token to bet on business ideas that they think are going to pay. 
And in doing so, they can sort of basically borrow cheaply from Maker and then lend at a, at a higher rate to small businesses in emerging markets, for instance. And then if they succeed and they get some good yields in return and, not, and don't have a lot of defaults, then they get the most of the reward. So now you've dealt with this problem of like this sort of apathy of like, it doesn't matter what I do, it makes no difference to me that we had in the early days. Now suddenly it's like, if you get in a good sub-DAO and you make a big difference and the sub-DAO does well, you're going to get really, really rewarded because most of those rewards will go to that specific sub-DAO, which will be a much smaller group, right? And they'll be only doing that one thing. So that's how you resolve for the issue of, you know, um, people when they farm, they often just are there during the time when they can get a lot of new tokens, which then they, you know, dump or whatever to make a quick profit. So this is your way of getting people invested so they stay longer term rather than just trying to farm and then move on to the next farming opportunity. It's actually a slightly different issue. Like I actually think, so we actually don't mind people farming and just selling a token. We just want, some people will not do that. And those are the ones we want. Those who just sell a token, that's actually also fine because uh, the trade-off is if you farm with your new stable, then you cannot get the savings rate. So there is kind of a cost to getting the uh, the subdown tokens, and that is that you're not getting you're not getting a savings rate in cash. So that way, it sort of equilibrates over time, right? That is what you'll be able to farm with the tokens will be. I mean, it'll likely be more than you can get uh, from the savings rate, since that's that's you know very reliable, stable cash, right? But it will not be. I mean, but basically, at some point, more and more people will farm the subdown tokens, and the the value, you know the yield will go down, but it will never go lower than the savings rate. Because if it, the savings rate, anyone can get that, right? So if, you know, if you're farming a sub-DAO and you can get a higher yield switching to the savings rate, then you're going to switch over to that. And, and this then means that the system is actually, it, it can do this sustainably, basically, because as people farm the sub tokens, they deposit capital into the call maker system. And the core maker system then allocates that capital out into collateral that generates a yield. And if you're then farming a subdot token, you don't get the yield yourself. The core gets the yield and uses that yield to then basically create and support the subdows. And so it's, you know, so basically you can choose to get a yield of cash, or you can choose to get it sort of indirectly as a subdow. But then as you get it indirectly as a subdow, this whole universe of gamification and incentives uh, and, and possibilities is available to you if that's something you're interested in. And, and again, it's all about making it as easy as possible, right? It needs to be really straightforward. Uh, and by having many different choices, there's a greater likelihood that there's going to be something for, for, you know, for people who are interested in, in that, right? So something like real assets or deep uh, crypto or even, I mean, one of the kind of the, the things we are looking at and sort of experimenting with right now is like, is like a sub-DAO that is focused on, on the Japanese community and sort of we, you know, it's, it's kind of like trying to take a completely different angle of like, instead of making a focus on a particular product, a product, uh, then it's more about like a brand, a set of values, a culture. And, and the, I mean, and specifically the Japanese crypto community, which is quite, it's, it's kind of quite distinct. Uh, I mean, and I guess a lot of crypto communities in Asia are, are, are very uh, uh, independent, but the, the Japanese community is particularly so due to like language barriers and also like cultural differences, something like that. But what we what we have found is that there's actually a lot of, of I mean, of Westerners basically in crypto that think all this stuff are like Japanese values, like uh, Japanese like art, anime, this kind of stuff. 
that's something that's like really that's appealing to them. And through a subdow, it's like you can offer something. I mean, it's in the end, it's just an it's just a yield, right? It's just an interest rate. But you can offer it now in a like in a completely different form, right? Like it's something. It's not just like rational, cold, hard cash with no uh, like sort of I don't know, like gray, boring thing that's just like doing math and managing your finances. It, it actually can become like a sort of an emotional, gamified experience, even right of like participating in something, um, and 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 finding something that sort of resonates with your own values. And finally, and this is the most important part, is not going to blow up in a Ponzi scheme because this stuff happened during the bull run, right? But the problem is it was abused to create Ponzi schemes and, and take people's money. And that's the big difference with the subdows is that all this sort of the, the economics and the, the tokenomics and the, the, all these like value flows are very, you know, balanced and, and you know, they're like designed to, to be sustainable uh, as they the, that's the main objective, right? It's not about like pump and dump. It's not about uh, getting people to like buy a token uh, that you know without knowing what they're going to get in return. Rather, it's like basically taking the core maker values, the core maker knowledge that we build up over all these years, and then actually making that available to these more, uh, I guess, like more fun, more flexible, more um, independent communities, so that you get kind of the best of both worlds. All right. So in a moment, we're going to walk through the other phases. But first, a quick word from the sponsors who make this show possible. Join over 10,000 attendees for this year's biggest crypto event at Token 2049 Singapore on September 13th to 14th. Sandeep from Polygon, Eric Wall, Chris Berniski, and over 200 others will hit the stage, joining the industry's most influential for an unforgettable experience ahead of the Formula One Grand Prix race weekend. Singapore will transform into a crypto hub for a week from September 11th to 17th, with over 300 side events that will make for unparalleled networking opportunities. Builders and investors at the bleeding edge of innovation will drive an agenda that covers the ever-evolving regulatory landscape, the convergence of crypto and AI, Web3 gaming, NFTs, and the metaverse, DeFi, scalability, interoperability, and many more. Visit token2049.com for 65% off regular ticket prices with the code UNCHAINED, link in the description. Join over 80 million people using Crypto.com, one of the easiest places to buy, trade, and spend over 250 cryptocurrencies. With the Crypto.com Visa card, you can spend your crypto anywhere and get rewarded at every step. Up to 5% cash back instantly, plus 100% rebates for your Netflix and Spotify subscriptions, and zero annual fees. New users enjoy zero credit card fees on crypto purchases in their first seven days. Download the Crypto.com app and get $25 with the code LAURA. Link in the description. Arbitrum stands at the forefront of innovation as the premier suite of Layer 2 scaling solutions, bringing you lightning-fast transactions at a fraction of the cost, all with security rooted on Ethereum. From DeFi to gaming, Arbitrum 1 plus Nova is home to over 500 projects. And with the recent launch of Orbit, Arbitrum welcomes you to build your very own tailor-made Layer 3, or as the Arbitrum ecosystem calls it, an Orbit chain, directly on the Arbitrum tech stack. Designed with you in mind, Arbitrum empowers you to explore and build without compromise. Propel your project and community forward by visiting Arbitrum.io today.
This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Back to my conversation with Rune. So we've discussed the rebrand. We've discussed subdow farming. Um, now let's discuss the other two phases. Yeah, so... What we call phase three is a little bit more uh, fluid because it's going to be, we're going to start implementing that immediately. Uh, in fact, you could say this is actually maybe what we started doing right from the beginning. But what, so phase three is the implementation. And maybe you could say phase three is like the delivery of the governance AI tools and the sort of the core governance infrastructure to a point where the system is able to run autonomously um, and you know run without. I mean, basically without needing any particular person involved, right? Without needing like me being involved or, or other like uh, core team members or something like that. Um, and we already ha- we're already pretty far in some, in some ways uh, with doing this uh, because the very beginning of the end game uh, was that we uh, created this thing. Originally, we called the Maker Constitution, but now we changed the name to the Maker Atlas. And so that's because basically constitution has a lot of connotations and baggage that it turned, you know, we just want to avoid. And, and it's a new thing. It's not, a, it's not exactly the same as a constitution, basically. It's not exactly the same as a legal system, um, but it's, it's similar. Uh, and it's, it's kind of like a mechanism for creating, like at the sort of the outer layers of it, it's, it's about creating governance boundaries. But then you kind of weave those boundaries and the processes and the, principles that you, you create that are possible within uh, this, this structure. And you use that to basically design um, and implement and enforce alignment okay. engineering. Yeah, so the Atlas is this rule set, basically, that sets the boundaries and then codifies all this alignment engineering, the different ways it's implemented in a system uh, as gamification, as, as incentives, and as tools that are provided to the participants. And it's actually, it's it's already in place uh, today. So it was, it was sort of the thing that uh, signified that Endgame was actually approved by Maker Governance was when the first uh, version of the Atlas was approved. Uh, so that was back in, uh, I believe, February the, of this year. And since then, it's basically what happened to Maker Governance is that it changed to a format where now the way governance works is that continuously the community updates the content of the Atlas uh, basically just making it more and more uh, sort of fleshed out, specifying more and more things. Uh, the, the key objective from, I mean, in the beginning, was simply just try to like codify and document and make explicit all the different like, you know, processes and rules and interactions that ha- have been occurring for a lot of the stuff we've been doing in maker, go- in, in, in maker governance throughout the years. But a lot of which, a lot of it was sort of this informal stuff that wasn't like really official, but sort of was, and it was very hard to get involved with, right? And, and it was very opaque. Um, so the first stage of the Atlas is just trying to document that. But the kind of the end stage, I mean, the, the place where we want to go with Atlas is it's supposed to actually contain all relevant data for the entire project. 
so that the definition of like what is relevant data becomes uh, it's in the atlas. And when what that means is it would not be possible to find any information, uh, at least in theory, that is like useful or relevant to the ecosystem that is not inside the atlas. If that makes, I mean, the, the reason why we are so interested in this is because today, or rather in the past especially, I mean, was this overwhelming sort of uh, hunt to figure out where do I go to get this information? Like, how do I find out? Who do I talk to? Like, how to do this stuff? It was like very sort of opaque. You'd have to go to five different websites and talk to five different people and go to some different sections in the forum or something like that, right? And then instead, the Atlas is like, it's a single place where... 100% of that data is contained. And if it's not contained there, it doesn't exist. Like it's not a part of the system. Well, I the one thing I wonder, so I, I understand, um, yeah, having kind of like a central repository for the information. But one thing that confused me was, I'm sure you're aware that these newly launched AIs, um, obviously they're really interesting and they can give you accurate answers, but they don't always. And sometimes they get creative and so I, I wondered why you were going to integrate this super new technology when it felt like a basic search would be better, like a, a really good search. Do you know what I'm saying? Or maybe you can limit the AI so it doesn't get like, yeah, creative with, with the answers and basically go beyond kind of what's there. Absolutely, right? And so, I mean, and then the first thing to hammer home is that the Atlas itself isn't AI, right? It's actually just a whole bunch of data. And ultimately, all of that data has to be human readable. And all of the processes have to be sort of possible to do manually as a human. Um, so actually, what the AI, I mean, but it just happens to be that if you put all possible data that's relevant to DAO into a giant file, I mean, document or like basically a file, I mean, eventually, you're not gonna, it's not going to be accessible for someone, especially someone who's supposed to be, you know, just having fun and, and being sort of casually participating. And, the whole point is we want to make it so that anyone can participate in this, right? Anyone can access this. It shouldn't just be the ultra specialized full-timers, right? And so that's, I mean, that's actually at the stage where like, I mean, the, the AI tools come in. Um, they are really, I mean, they're really just supposed to act essentially as like search uh, pattern matching systems that assist humans in interacting with these processes that ultimately are designed for humans and human readable. So I actually think, I mean, uh, so, for, I mean, so first of all, one thing is really important to realize is this means there's not going to be like one like maker AI or like one official AI system that's like the thing that decides what happens. Like nothing will actually be run by AI. It's rather that humans will have a lot of very useful tools that makes it actually easy uh, to navigate the Atlas. But at the same time, they're going to have to deal with, I mean, exactly what you're talking about, that there's always going to be the potential for inaccuracy. Not just from the AI, but actually also from other humans, right? So this is actually just like a, a normal part of governance. Um, and the key way you you deal with this problem is diversification, right? So, and I mean, when you think about it from the perspective of AI tools, is that you want to have multiple different tools that work in different ways. Maybe just some that are just basic search uh, tools, right? And while others are language models and maybe something, I mean, more exotic like uh, symbolic AI or something. You can use many different tools together, right? You can use search, you can use uh, language models. And, and so language models are particularly good at things like summarizing a, a huge amount of, of uh, complicated data, for instance. 
but in the future, also more advanced AI, something like symbolic AI and, and neural symbolic networks and this kind of stuff. So, and, and basically the key is that um, humans are the ones running everything and all of these tools are just making it a lot easier uh, so that it, it becomes possible as some like total casual outsider to potentially, you know, completely like master all of the rules of the entire system and sort of be able to say like, I'm going to check out if there's anyone anywhere in the whole ecosystem that's breaking some tiny little rule. And that will actually be easy with the AI tools. Uh, however, it will not be correct 100% of the time. So if you do that, then all you will know is you'll basically know where to pay attention. You're not going to know with 100% certainty, here's somebody who's like breaking a particular rule. But you'll know that here over, over here, there's a good uh, chance that there might be something that is, you know, if you look more into it, there may be something that is that is misaligned with the rules. And then the final sort of piece of the puzzle here is that as a total outsider, if you can basically sort of prove based on the rules of Atlas that somebody took an action that was against uh, the rules as they are, as they have been approved by the governance, you can get a whistleblower bounty. So this, and, and, and then uh, the people who, were responsible for following these rules and operating within the system. They, I mean, that's basically, that's the subdows, right? So primarily, the, I mean, the subdows are the ones that are sort of doing all the, the, the operating in the system. And the subdows have tokens and they have, uh, you know, they have reserves and they have a treasury and they have collateral. So when you, like, so basically they got to pay your whistleblower bounty. Um, and that means they're going to, you know, they know that anyone can come and very easily ask, all of these powerful AI tools if we're not following the rules uh, and then we'll have to pay. So we'll, there's, you know, that just creates this incentive to be very careful about doing things according to the rules, right? And the subdaps themselves, I mean, they're also just made up of people, right? But they also have access to the same tools. So they can basically ask the same tools, like how can we operate so that we minimize the chance that we break the rules, right? Again, though, they're still fundamentally responsible as humans for, you know, if, if the AI is wrong, then, you know, there's no way to like prove that, prove that they, they weren't intending to break the rules, right? The fact is they broke the rules. So they got to always double check everything. And, and uh, that's sort of the role of like the, the humans in the system, right? Is that they are like the final sanity check. Um, but as long as the AI systems then perform correctly and the humans just understand that they are taking the responsibility, they are sort of pushing the button according to what the AI is suggesting, then you could think of the system eventually, especially as the AI gets very mature, as a system that is like, you know, very rapidly able to iterate, able to innovate, able to make decisions through, uh, you know, AI-driven um, uh, sort of intelligence, right? And, and like thinking and, and reasoning about this is the data available, this is the best possible choice. Something like, where should we allocate the collateral? There's a new proposal. We can process that super fast and be like, Yes, we'll 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 um, we'll deploy the capital, or maybe no, we're not going to deploy with you. But we'll consider these like you know five thousand other possibilities and pick the best one out of them. And that's the kind of stuff that today is like. I mean, that's completely out of reach of today's DAOs, right? Like today's DAOs is like, who's the? I mean, step one is you got to be friends with some insider, right? And then step two is you got to wait for two years for some like you know masochistic bureaucracy, as, as it's sometimes called, right? And, and with this kind of approach, it's just things can be so fast, right? And 
sometimes there will be mistakes, right? So sometimes it'll go too fast and a subtitle will be a little bit too fast and loose, or maybe like we'll just like get used to just rubber stamping whatever the AI is suggesting. And then one day it's just hallucinating and sending on the wrong path. But when those kind of mistakes happen, then the overall, like the boundaries, right? The, the large scales or the governance boundaries prevent any particular action from being like too massive in one go, right? Uh, so it's, it's kind of a big part of the system is learning, right? That if a subdoubt does something, it turns out to be a bad decision or a, a broken AI or something, then maybe they suffer a loss. Um, but that's fine. I mean, they're designed for that, basically. They've got, they're overcapitalized. They've got their tokens. Uh, they sort of, I mean, so prim- first of all, they insulate, uh, you know, maker from taking any sort of loss with all of their own capital, Right. But also because they're, I mean, they themselves, you know, well, at least they have all the tools available and all the knowledge available to practice correct risk management. Then it also might just be, okay, well, they were moved too fast. They took a loss. But now they, I mean, now they know this is the way things can break. So now they can sort of integrate that into the Atlas and basically be like, from now on, we know that whenever this happens, we need to do some extra checks uh, because otherwise it can go wrong. And what's really cool about this is that this is not just going to be contained in one subdial, right? Now that knowledge will like be available to the whole ecosystem. So you again get this like best of both worlds where on one hand, you have these individual actors that can move fast and, and break things, right? And be very flexible and focus on particular uh, specific areas. But you also got this like very scaled up sort of network effect and economies of scale of, of, of like a very large system where... You gotta. You just need to pay the price of making the mistake in one place at one time, and now the whole ecosystem will learn that, and will forever be able to access that data, and uh, and the AIs will be able to sort of think about, okay, well, maybe they're doing something similar in some subdial somewhere else, but they can actually look at see like, well, this other subdial they did something that looks similar to what we were doing, and there was a problem, uh, and and uh, they you know they should have done these particular checks, so we gotta make sure we will do something similar. And, and the AI tools help the humans also try to sort of make those connections, right? And sort of search through all the data and then try to integrate it. Yeah, I think, I mean, it sounds really interesting in that way. And it does remind me of how people talk about how AI will be used in healthcare so that doctors who maybe are less familiar with certain things, they'll at least have the knowledge that um, comes from the experience of other doctors. But uh, you know, a part of me thought, well, you could have sub DAOs that do things that are positive for them, but negatively impact other sub DAOs or negatively impact um, the whole system, which, you know, I, I think it'll be an experiment for sure. Um, one thing I wanted to ask you, though, is that Andreessen Horowitz opposed your plan. Um, so why is it that you think the MakerDAO community decided to adopt it anyway? Well, I mean, I guess a big reason is that uh, I'm just by far the most active, uh, you know, large holder of the tokens, right? And I've been doing the whole thing uh, uncompensated as well. So I'm like a proper volunteer, right? So I think that... Well, except you have slightly under 10% of the total MKR supply, I think. So... Yeah, absolutely. But I mean, but the point is that if I didn't think that this would be beneficial because I hold all these tokens, then I wouldn't do it, right? Uh, and on the other hand, I mean, more importantly, I'm doing it because I think they will basically be worthless without it, right? Uh, like, I don't think that the, like, basically in the current state, uh, it, like, 
DAOs will require like, um, you know, I mean, basically they, they, they don't, they just don't really work unless they are very close to, to being centralized the way they currently work. Right. So, and from my perspective, that's a, that's like a dead end. Like, so what we need is a, is some kind of answer to this that is more than, you know, let's just pretend it's not the case or let's just hope for the, the whales are going to vote correctly or something like that. And then, I mean, I think the final thing is that this sub-down model has immensely like helped this internal friction and drama that, that, I mean, happens in every DAO, but especially happens a lot. Well, happened a lot in MakerDAO, right? Uh, because, and, and that goes back to this thing of like the sort of the cultural element of, of sub-DAOs, right? That it turns out that in a DAO, just like in any organization, um, I mean, so much of what's happening is not rational. It's not mathematical or financial. It's all about, it's like people working together and then some people having trouble communicating because there are diff- cultural differences or, personality differences and and in like in a in a in like a sort of a cookie cutter naive dial there's this super dysfunctional dynamic of if you have some kind of conflict between two people you can like escalate it publicly to sort of the court of public opinion which is just such a horrific yeah it's just such a terrible environment to work in um and yeah i mean it's really that everyone that's worked in the i mean basically throughout the years have been like crawling through the mud and 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 dealing with this kind of stuff in Maker. Everyone did it because they saw this like light at the end of the, t- of the tunnel. They had this like belief that one day we'll figure it out. We've, we've got to be able to have some way we can create this like utopian decentralized organization, right? This, this like open collaborative community and we'll figure out a way to get all the drama behind us and all this like dysfunction. And, and Subtitles basically is like the first realistic uh, sort of answer to how to deal with this because what it means is oh well all the people that work well together they go in the same sub down those that don't work well together just make sure they don't go in the same sub down then suddenly it's like the the kind of the conflict becomes like i guess you could say explicit in a sense right and it turns into just competition and in fact a kind of competition where you still end up collaborating I mean, I understand like why you're doing it, but I don't know if it will necessarily turn out that everybody in one sub DAO will disagree with will agree with each other because as time goes on and uh, the DAO coalesces around um, a certain purpose, then there's going to be people who disagree on you know steps forward. Um, so you, we'll just have to see how it works out. But I wanted to also ask you about what we mentioned earlier, which is your large holdings of the MKR token. And, you know, to have this one actor that, uh, you know, has such a large percentage of the supply, that's that's a problem for a governance token. So how are you trying to mitigate that problem um, and or actually just solve it? Yeah, I, actually, I just want to, one thing I just want to mention about subdows. Well, so the answer is that's actually phase four. So it's like the last phase is once everything else is in place, then we get to the point of, the, we get to this the central issue of voter apathy. But I just wanted to make one quick point about uh, the dynamics of subdows and this like the, the question of alignment between people, right? So basically the, the thing is subdows will totally fail. They will, there will be subdows that have drama and can function. And they will actually, you know, they will go extinct, essentially, right? They will just not make it. They'll not be competitive compared to those that figure out how to work together. I mean, another dynamic, though, is that you do also have the, you know, you can very easily walk away, right? So it could also just be that you're like, oh, this sub is not for me anymore. 
but there's this other one that you know maybe is is uh, compatible and then you can like you got somewhere else to go which is not the case in 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 the in old school uh, maker and old school monolithic DAOs, right but the most important ultimately is that sometimes it will just die out and then what the system does is it just creates more and more so it just keeps creating new sub DAOs, and the rate at which it creates new sub DAOs depends on how many there already are so the more there are the slower it creates new ones so eventually you get some kind of equilibrium where if they die, if a lot of them die, it just creates a lot of new ones. And then those new ones, they're going to look at, I mean, effect, it'll be, you know, it'll be integrated into the Atlas. Like what happened in those that, where it didn't go well? And what are they doing in the ones where it does go well? Maybe it's something like you got to make sure you fly everyone together. Got to spend a lot of uh, energy on having uh, you know, meetups or something like that. And if you do that, then it helps, right? Or maybe you got to really be laser focused on what is your focus area. And if you try to do too many things, then you get clashes. Or, or it, maybe it's just, there's just some people that are just not suitable. And whenever they, you, you hire those in a sub DAO, they help, you know, they make it blow up. Wh- whatever it is, uh, you can kind of learn from it, right? It's kind of an evolutionary process. And I mean, I can't guarantee it's actually going to work, I guess. You know, maybe they will all blow up, in which case uh, I think DAOs simply do not work. Uh, and that's kind of my thinking with endgame in general that like this is like the last chance if it doesn't work then i don't i don't see how uh the idea works at all basically um but is if we just find a few instances where it works then we've got everything lined up to like learn sort of aggressively uh you know like build on top of that and learn from that and make sure that that's what's done and everything that goes against uh that everything that sort of goes in the wrong direction we can very easily sort of cut that off, basically cut it loose and, and, you know, really make sure we're focusing on this singular goal of actually making it work, right? Actually trying to deliver the, the true purpose of the, of the project, right? And, okay, so phase three, the end, like the end of phase three, three is this, I mean, that's sort of, that's basically the idea is that that's when we are at this stage where now we have a sense of, we know how it works. We know how to make it work, right? Uh, we know how to make and not blow up uh, people. To, to, and, and the AI tools are, are, are mature enough and the Atlas is mature enough to contain this knowledge and to help to very easily guide people into like, you know, so it would be something like the Atlas contains a bunch of data related to how to constructively participate. And the AI helps explain that to you in a way that you're going to understand as an end user. So that whenever new people come in, they're very, very much directed towards, you know, don't, um, make a bunch of comments about something or like make a bunch of, of proposals, that's going to piss people off, right? Don't do that because that's not going to work well, right? Do something else, like participate in this way and that's going to help you understand how to constructively participate. Something like that, right? We'll, we, we, like, we'll be able to like grow the ecosystem and, and participating isn't going to require that you like have the right friends or have the right mentor or something or have the right connection, right? You actually can sort of just come from the outside and kind of integrate uh, and it's it's easy and I mean it'll never work 100% of the time but it I think it will be like a lot of the time it will work because if people want it to work uh, and they have an, enough of an open mind that they can fit into one of the you know six sub that one of them is like it's the right fit for them I think all the cards are stacked in our favor in, in the sense of like that there's, I don't think there's going to be many people who, I mean, if they have a genuine interest, 
I don't think there's going to be many that's going to not be able to find some place where uh, they're going to fit in. And when we finally have reached that stage, that's when we then can go. I mean, when sort of phase three is done, then we can go to phase four. And so phase four is about basically locking down the governance by uh, putting in place voter incentives. So basically, uh, and we go through this system called the Sagittarius Lockstake Engine. Uh, and so Lockstake lock staking is, is like our, our word for something. It's, it's similar to like the curve tokenomics, right? Of like you, you really lock your assets up into the system. In our case, it's you, you don't lock it up behind a timer. You lock it up behind an exit fee. So it's like you, if you locked your new, uh, new Gov tokens into the system uh, with this, I mean, if you lock stake them, then if you want to un, unstake, basically unlock them again, uh, you got to pay 15% of your principal. So you can leave the next day, but you got to immediately pay 15%. So that's a very steep price to pay, right? So once you're in like this, you want to stay in for a long time. Uh, and the reason why you want to stay in, the reason why you want to get in the first place is because you're getting paid to vote. Uh, and the way you're paid is through, um, base, well, I, well, it's like a, it's a choice. So you can choose to either get paid in uh, a percentage of the, of the cash income of the system or in subdow tokens. So this is the one other way to become a subdow token holder is to uh, have uh, the, well, the upgraded MPR, new Gov token, and then lock stake, and then get a large amount. Uh, like, I mean, there's a relatively large amount of subdow tokens you get this way because obviously st- there's going to be a lot of stablecoin holders, while not that many lock stakers compared to the stablecoin holders. But ultimately, I mean, because the rewards for lock staking will be so significant, uh, you know, it'll be, I mean, there'll be, uh, there'll be a lot of people doing it, right? There'll be a lot of inflows. Uh, because the yield will just be so so high that even with the exit fee, uh, it will be um, you know it'll be irresistible basically to people who are already like participating in the system. And then when that finally comes around, I mean that's when when uh, whales like me finally can can uh, sort of pull back right and not really have to be so active. And in theory, I could like leave entirely, right? I mean that's what always that's always been my goal is. I could get the system to a point where I could just entirely leave or go on on holiday for a year, right? And not even check in or anything, right? And just basically count on that all of the incentives, including you've got these lock stakers that are locked in the system, they have to vote. And because it's expensive for them to leave, they're going to be interested in making sure they vote in a way that doesn't damage the system. And And can they delegate? Well, actually, they have to delegate. So lock staking requires that you delegate. Oh, um, right. If they're delegating, then they can outsource the voting and then they don't need to actually be active. Yeah, well, I mean, the way they're active is they're choosing how they outsource the voting. So basically, this is all a part of like the Atlas and the governance AI tools. Um, there's like a whole system of like checks and balances where basically the what we call the aligned delegates, which are these like professional compensated delegates uh, they have to follow specific strategies that are designed by another type of professional compensated uh, participant called the aligned voter committee member Um, and this creates a sort of check and balance where in all cases there's a lot of rules around that basically when you participate uh, as one of these aligned uh, well actually they're called alignment conservers right the 
the number one uh, job that they have that they're getting paid for is that they have to make sure that the boundaries of the atlas uh, are respected. Um, and they're following what we call the spirit of the atlas. So this basic idea that, for instance, uh, I mean, one of the things we keep, we saw a lot that naturally tends to happen when you delegate is that the delegates tend to think that they should, you know, have more compensation and, and the role of delegates should grow over time, right? That they should be doing, get more responsibility. And, and this is like, I mean, it's a total natural thing if you're like on remote control and just delegate power and you're just like, oh yeah, you'll figure it out. I'm not going to give you any support other than just telling you to figure it out yourself. Of course, you're going to then be like, well, then I have to, you know, put things in place so I have a chance to figure it out, right? That's actually a natural uh, response for, for people um, when they're sort of thrust into that position of, 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 uh, of power and authority that they weren't even expecting to get, right? Because that that's not sort of the supposed to be the, the point of being a delegate, right? But with, with basically an endgame, as a delegate, you've got all, you know, you've got this very streamlined gamified process. You've got the Atlas giving you a lot of boundaries, a lot of, of, of you know, like data around how, what's supposed to be, uh, how, how a decision is supposed to be made, made. And you've got the AI tools to navigate all of this. And everyone else has got the AI tools to figure out if you're following the rules or not, if you're remaining in alignment. And so the end result is that as a voter, as a lock staker that's being, um, you know, that's, that's basically, that can, you can choose to, to lock into the system so you can get paid to vote. Your user experience is this, I mean, it's sort of like a gamified election, basically. That is like every single year you got to go and you got to elect. Basically what you choose is you choose a delegate and then you choose a strategy. And it's comparable to like, I mean, a democracy and, and choosing a political party. And, and we, I mean, right now the, word, the, the, the terminology we use is that our equivalent of like the political spectrum is that we got what we call dovish and hawkish governance, right? And so dovish governance, that's like higher budgets, you know, lower rates, lower spreads to users. And this like long-term focus of like, let's grow, let's get things done, right? And then hawkish is like lower the budgets, increase the spreads, right? Focus on, on accumulating capital, building up buffers, uh, sort of securing our financial situation today. Obviously, there's a lot of other uh, factors as well, but, but there is a very hard limit on like what it's possible to make decisions about. Like, so the Atlas just like forbids, you know, something like let's change the role. Let's make it so delegates also uh, do marketing and double their budgets or something, right? Like, that's a proposal. This is like there's just no way that you could ever make that kind of a proposal because every single AI tool would just be like, can't do that. That's misaligned. You're gonna get a whistleblower bounty for for shutting it down, right? And and it's naturally like there's no way you could interpret the atlas to allow something like that. And same thing goes for I mean something like let's uh, also launch a I don't know derivatives market from the call or something. All of that would it would be the same. It would be like no way. The call needs to be Bitcoin-like, as we talked about in the beginning, right? It needs to to uh, stay the same and not get interrupted and not drift and not uh, corrupt uh, and just focus on this basic objective of stability and mitigating tail risk. And then all that fun stuff and and you know all that experimental stuff, go do that in the subdubs. Right. So that's the other thing is that we have that outlet of like, we're not saying we'll forever just be like the most boring thing and nothing can happen. Actually, there's plenty of room for that. It's just it needs to happen in these 
kind of uh, de-risked sandboxes of the subdials, right? So if you want to do some crazy experiment, then there's a place, there's a there's a time and a place for that where the incentives are correct. And if you make a mistake, you're gonna basically, you know, you can't like socialize that to everyone else. It's gonna be uh, for your subdial specifically, and the other participants in the subdial knows that that's what they're signing up for. So um, we'll get to the question about your allocation of tokens in a minute, but why don't we just keep talking about some of the things that you're launching as you guys implement this new endgame. Um, you have the Spark lending protocol, which you mentioned briefly earlier. Um, you know, you could talk about that. And then uh, also, you know, DAI recently adopted an 8% interest rate. I don't think that's sustainable, um, but, you know, maybe you could talk about both of those things and what you're trying to incentivize. So Spark Protocol at SparkDAO is like, the, that's kind of like the first subdial that got really fleshed out. Um, and basically, it was, I mean, it's based on uh, on the Ava code base um, because it's just, I mean, and basically it's, it's like an attempt to adopt this like very modern, uh, uh, powerful featured code base. Um, and then, uh, yeah, like use that to, to experiment with having that in a subdial and then having the subdial determine things like, what collateral to onboard? Uh, I mean, we in Maker we discovered that we were really, really bad at picking collateral types, and we paid huge sums of money to onboard all sorts of stuff, and then we had to pay huge sums of money to offboard it again. And like we developed oracles, and we paid crazy gas costs for the oracles, and then we had to like shut down the oracles again. And usually, we never made any money at all from all of these like random collateral types. Um, but it costs a lot of money. And I guess even worse, it costs a huge amount of governance attention. So that's kind of the idea with Spark, Spark DAO is it's a DAO that, you know, maybe by only focusing on that and not being distracted by all the other stuff that we were distracted by in Maker, they'll actually be able to pick the right, pick the winners and, you know, mitigate the losses. And if they're not able to, then they're going to be the ones paying, right? It's not going to be the entire DAO that'll be paying for this. Uh, and, you know, maybe it, I mean, it went on for like a year with before anyone noticed, basically. And that's the kind of the classic DAO thing, right? That you're just repeating the same thing and, and nobody cares because it's so big that like any individual isn't really going to have a, you know, going to feel the effects of it in, in the short run. And then so leading up to, I mean, the launch of token farming for Spark DAO, which is a lot of, of interest in that, right? A lot of people are really excited to, to get involved with that. Um, but I mean, but we basically want to make sure, I mean, we want to have as many people as possible to, to farm these tokens and to, I mean, we want to really grow the, the demand for, for DAI, right? For this, well, for this new stable coin, this new brand. Uh, so we can, I mean, I guess hopefully break the stagnation in the space and, 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 you know, bring in a new, uh, you know, a new uh, wave of, of users and show them that there's actually something exciting that can be done that isn't going to be a scam or a hack or something. The problem is that right now Maker is mostly seen as it's right. It's like I mean, well, Dai is used for as a stablecoin. Uh, it's not really perceived as a place you can get yield, right? Uh, that's not. True. I mean, that's because the Dai savings rate has been zero percent for so many years. So even when we increase the Dai savings rate to um, like three point five percent, which is very sustainable given the the yield that Maker can generate from real assets. Nobody really adopted it. Like the adoption happened very slowly. So this new uh, initiative called the, Enha the Enhanced Die Savings Rate is basically based off, I mean, basically the difference between how, like how, like basically that, actually everybody that holds die 
should be getting the die savings rate if they were rational. And if only a very few percentage of them is getting it, then that leaves this massive amount of like unutilized die that is just generating excess yields for the protocols, for the protocol, basically, right? Like if somebody holds die, doesn't get the die savings rate, and Maker gets to put that into high yielding real assets, then Maker is going to earn a huge uh, windfall surplus. And we've been doing that for like, I mean, basically the whole year. The dice are like, Die demand has also been decreasing, and generally the whole space has been sort of stagnating, right? And so, in the light of that, basically the enhanced die savings rate is basically making the bet that we're, we're better off investing in growth right now uh, than just like hoarding profits. Um, especially because what we can do is we can kind of like send a signal to the market that look, die is actually going to be about not just stablecoin; it's going to be about yield as well. And this is kind of like the first taste in a sense, right? Um, but And if you remember, then the key thing that makes subdow farming sustainable is that you cannot both get the die savings rate and farm subdows. So we wouldn't actually even, I mean, we, in the end, we would be doing something like this anyway once we launch the subdows. Uh, so we wouldn't, like, it's not, in that sense, it's not costing us as much or like, it's not taking away our long-term income generation potential because we never counted on uh i mean almost like ripping people off in a sense right i mean i guess we're not ripping people off but like people are not we're offering them money and they're not taking it uh so we're getting the money ourselves and that is not supposed to be how the system works so by setting the die savings rate higher and getting a lot more people in to take take the yield uh that helps with our growth it costs money but ultimately because we've been doing the subdow farming anyway, then uh, it costs less money than you think because these many of these people will convert over to subdow farming once that goes live. One of the big topics in DeFi has been regulation. I mean, it's really been the topic in crypto everywhere. Um, but you know, I've seen obviously you're blocking Americans from the yield farming in your new system. Why is that? Yeah, I mean, so like you said yourself, right? Regulation is like and compliance is like really the it's like the biggest thing that everyone's focusing on now and like in the whole in the mega ecosystem like every company every participant they're all like uh, trying to figure this out um and and, and yeah. what would need to change in american regulation for you to um you know unblock americans so i mean that's it's actually really hard i mean the problem with the us is that it's just it's just uncertainty right there's actually no it's not really, I mean, it's not very clear. Uh, and so it's, it's uncertain. Um, and I, I mean, I think basically for now, this is like the, the this is like the best. Uh, I mean, we, we, we're, we're uh, comfortable with like the current um, approach to this. Uh, and unfortunately, I mean, obviously it's, it's, I mean, it's annoying for end users. That a lot of people are upset about this, right? Because they think it's like some kind of discrimination or something like that. Um, but ultimately, I mean, like I said, I mean, this is, I mean, and like you said, this is the number one thing everyone's concerned about. I mean, this is the number one thing that could, and it's also, we're also being impacted by the fact that there are so many hacks, there's so many scams, right? That's just further kind of, it means that you really, like, it's a very good idea to be uh, prudent and, and you know, really uh, find the right solutions for this. So you're basically... It sounds like a couple of things. First of all, there's no clarity around 
the status of tokens, how they should be regulated. And then second, it's that if the North Koreans hack you, then you won't face a tornado cash type of um, prohibition. Is that what you're getting at? I mean, the whole question of uh, hacking and tornado cash and so on, that's actually, a com- I mean, that's a, that's not really related to yield. That's like its own um, problem, basically. But I think, I mean, I, and I, th- I mean, yeah. And the tornado cash is like its own uh, complicated case, right? With a lot of complicated facts and, and uh, nuance to it. Um, but yeah, I mean, like, I mean, again, it's ultimately, this is an evolving thing. Uh, we have a huge, we have this, I mean, we've got both this thing we call the legal resilience um, uh, fund, basically, or the legal resilience, uh, like, uh, process in the Atlas that budgets for, for uh, just, like, generally making the system as resilient and as, as uh, you know, strong uh, in order to protect users from some kind of, like, um, accidental side effect of, of of uh, of regulatory action or something like that, um, and then also like legal research, right? So that we're trying to like adapt and predict what's going to happen in the future. How can we improve the system? How can we even try to impact things so that that the um, global regulation of crypto can go in a more uh, positive direction? And I think like overall, the the thing that I have the highest hope for in terms of like, I mean, basically getting us beyond regulation being the thing that everyone's worried about all the time. And that sort of um, is one of the big sort of issues that the space still needs to, to crack, right? I think overall, like, basically, we need to prove that those jurisdictions that embrace crypto and do offer clear guidelines and do basically make it, you know, create a good environment for crypto businesses. Uh, we need to show that they're going to get rewarded big time with legit value, innovation, jobs, growth not a bunch you know not that they then get a bunch of scams um and that's really a major uh, part of our strategy right and and there and and it's a, in particular south korea and japan are two countries that we are focusing heavily on and that's because they have i mean they're exactly in this kind of shape where like they actually provide very good environments very stable environments for crypto um, if we can, I would love to be able to, I mean, have basically sub that could find ways to allocate real assets into these jurisdictions and, and generate good yields um, because they're just like, I mean, they have basically shown that, that um, you know, they're not going to create a bunch of uncertainty and then in that make arbitrary decisions uh, and then be like, oh, it's your own fault. You should have should have known better. Right. But rather. Uh, I mean, not that that's, I actually don't think that's necessarily really happening anywhere, but the possibility is there in many places. In South Korea and Japan, they're probably the two best places where it's just like, that doesn't seem uh, uh, possible the way, I mean, it, given the current signals uh, that, are, that are being sent from there. And, 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 well, and then the other thing is they're large, they're large countries, right? So they're not like some tiny offshore or, or, or just like a place that will very easily get pushed around by other countries. All right. And so um, let's revisit that question about your, um, you know, the fact that you own slightly under 10% of the supply of MKR. What are you doing to either mitigate that problem or just resolve it completely? Yeah. So like I said earlier, I mean, basically what needs to be in place uh, before it's safe for me to, I mean, potentially 
uh, stop participating or selling my token and so on. Or maybe just like delegate and go on autopilot. What's needed for that is, I mean, first it's the phase three element of like, there need to be really strong rules and boundaries and AI tools that makes it possible for everyone to sort of operate the system without relying on like whales and, and someone like me to, to be there if things, things start, uh, you know, spiraling into some problems, problem, right? But rather we need to, that needs to be built into the fabric of the DAO itself. And then once that's built into the fabric of the DAO itself, then we can incentivize voter participation. Uh, so that, I mean, we want to get, I mean, you know, we want to get 30, 40% of all the tokens voting, right? Um, and once we get that, then basically, I mean, nobody, like nobody's ever going to be a whale that has that many tokens in the system. So you're never going to have individuals that are going to have much of a, of a, of like a, a say at that point. And even if you did, then there would still be boundaries for what they could do. Like they would still not be able to break uh, the Atlas. Um, and that's, I mean, and the, the final reason why, and this is actually, a, I mean, this is protection that Maker actually has this protection today. Uh, and actually no other project has this, but it's basically because we have minority token holder protection, right? Today, it's in the form of the ability to completely shut down and settle and unwind the system. Uh, in case, so that would basically be you do that in a case of an attack where someone's trying to steal all the money in the system. Then you can make it so, okay, yeah, you can't steal all the money. Uh, we're gonna, sh- I mean, we shut it down. Everyone just gets their money back. The, I mean, the, the big downside to that is that it's still a disaster because now the project is dead, right? Um, and at the end, at the very last stage of endgame, we'll change that to a system where you can actually sort of put it back together smoothly. So it's like a sort of an additional layer of governance that goes beyond the token voting, the token voting, and that actually allows you to like. So basically, is if a giant whale at that point says, "I'm gonna like take all the money for myself," or "I'm gonna like uh, rule myself as CEO of the project," uh, and I can vote for that because I have the most tokens, then actually the system can be like, "Well, that's against the atlas." So it's actually possible for like the entire ecosystem to sort of kind of shut down, settle out everything, and then reform back together, but without this guy. And the reason why it's possible to coordinate around that is because the Atlas will contain like very specific data around like when exactly is someone abusing the voting power? What are you supposed to do in that scenario? How do you do it? How do you coordinate it? So you don't have to like figure it out on the fly. It's like all written down already and everybody can use their AI tools to make it easy for them to understand what they're supposed to do in that scenario. Um, and that way, yeah, like at the end of it all, basically it should be like, um, like, I mean, I shouldn't have to do anything. I shouldn't be needed for the system whatsoever. Right. And yeah, like I should be able to sell all my tokens and just walk away and, uh, nothing material should change for the project in that case. All right, Rune. Well, this has been so fascinating hearing your vision for how all of this should transform over the next few years. Um, I look forward to seeing how well it works out. Where can people learn more about you and your work? Uh, so, of course, you can go to makeitout.com. Uh, that's also a place to, uh, if you want to get the, the enhanced die savings rate and get a really good yield as a, as a taste of what's to come with subdive farming. If you're not American, unfortunately. <laughs> um, and then, uh, we, I mean, there's our Twitter at MakerDAO, and then there's my Twitter at Rune KK, if you want to follow for more. Great. Well, it's been a pleasure having you on Unchained. Yeah. Thanks so much for letting me come. 
Thanks so much for joining us today. To learn more about Rune and Maker, check out the show notes for this episode. Unchained is produced by me, Laura Shin, with help from Kevin Fuchs, Matt Pilchard, Zach Seward, Juan Aranovich, Sam Sriram, Megan Gavis, Ginny Hogan, Leandra Camino, Shashank, and Margaret Curia. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.